I'm not prepared to say that he's unfit to sit on the Supreme Court, but I have deep questions about his fitness to sit on the Supreme Court, and I think those are fully fair questions to ask after the display that we saw. Look, for example, at Amy Coney Barrett, who had to very passionately defend herself against anti-Catholic attacks during her hearing. I don't think anyone called her some kind of hysterical woman and said she wasn't fit for the bench or net. I just think that's suggesting that there's a double standard there isn't really fair. There hasn't been a double standard. I think he's someone who fervently defended himself. Women had to fervently defend themselves at times, too. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from a very sunny and warm Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled, A Christmas Story. My co-host Bob Ambrosi recently retired from Lawyer to Lawyer and we are in search of guest co-hosts who can join me to discuss these current legal topics. If you're an attorney and interested, feel free to reach out to our producer, Kate Nutting, via email at kate at legaltalknetwork.com. And before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is cloud-based practice management software, makes it easy to manage your firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Well, on October 6, 2018, Brett Michael Kavanaugh was sworn in as the 114th Justice of the Supreme Court. Allegations of sexual misconduct from years past, days of dramatic Senate Judiciary Committee public hearings, a combative Senate split, by party, and an FBI investigation into Kavanaugh, perhaps a couple of them, and finally a very controversial vote led to him as a new justice on our high court. So what kind of impact will Justice Kavanaugh have on the Supreme Court? Will the controversies swirling around him follow to the high court and put his decisions in the spotlight? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss Justice Kavanaugh. We'll talk about the controversy over his appointment, the FBI investigation, the confirmation hearing, judicial misconduct complaints, and future impact on the Supreme Court. And to do that, we've got a great lineup of guests today. Here to discuss today's topic is returning guest Carrie Severino. She is the Chief Counsel and Policy Director of the Judicial Crisis Network. In that capacity, Carrie has testified before Congress on an assorted set of constitutional issues and brief senators on judicial nominations. She's written and spoken on a wide range of judicial issues, particularly constitutional limits on government, the federal nomination process, and state judicial selection. Welcome back to the show, Carrie. Good to be here. And our next guest is Stephen Schwinn. He is the professor of law at the John Marshall School of Law in Chicago. He teaches, writes, and talks about issues related to constitutional law, comparative constitutional law, and human rights. He co-edits the Constitutional Law Prof blog and is a frequent media commentator on the Constitution, the courts, and politics. Welcome to the show, Steve. Well, thanks so much, Craig. It's a pleasure to be with you. Great. Well, Steve, I think we'd like to toss the first question to you, perhaps just to give us a background of Justice Kavanaugh, his reputation as a judge, the type of rulings we've seen from him in the in the district courts, and what his general background is. Sure. Uh, judge Kavanaugh comes to the Supreme Court from the D.C. Circuit, where he was appointed by George W. Bush in 2006. 
He has been a longtime Washington lawyer going back to associate counsel on Ken Starr's team with the, with the Whitewater investigation of President Clinton to the Bush, uh, the Bush presidential election legal team in the year 2000, served as White House staff secretary for President Bush, and then was appointed to the, the D.C. Circuit, and then obviously most recently appointed to the Supreme Court by President Trump. He's got a reputation as a, as a thoughtful and good judge, a conservative judge, to be sure, but um, but nevertheless, a uh, a good judge. Great. Well, Carrie, what's it like to go through the uh, nomination process and the and the confirmation process for a justice? And you've been through that several times and advised uh, senators. How? What's the whole process like? Wow. Well, the way I answer that question today is very different than I think I would have even um, you know four months ago. But obviously, it's a very intensive process. Um, you know, a hundred years ago, if you had a Senate controlled by the same party as the president, you might not have a hearing, you might be confirmed within a week or two. And now, of course, even when you have someone like Justice Gorsuch, where it was overwhelming support by the party that controlled the Senate, you still have months for process. You have uh, visiting all the different senators um, and and talking with them, as as well as hearings, of course, for several days, uh, both questioning the justice, questioning the the, the judicial nominee, questioning um, witnesses about it, and then moving on to a vote. Obviously, we saw with the Kavanaugh hearings a particularly um, outrageous level of of partisanship that that started happening. So it wasn't just the typical process already from the get-go, chiefly because it was the Kennedy seat that was being replaced. And so people saw this as, oh my goodness, this is replacing the longtime swing vote on the court. Uh, you had people from day one saying this president shouldn't be allowed to even make a nomination and, and finding lots of reasons they thought, you, let, let's not even have a, a, a nominee at this point. Let's delay these hearings. And then, of course, you know, it's during the hearings themselves, we saw a, a real rowdy atmosphere. There were more than 200 protesters who were arrested during those hearings, were standing up and disrupting them. There were senators who were interrupting each other. It took uh, Chairman Grassley over an hour to finish his 10-minute opening statements because he was interrupted dozens of times by his own colleagues from the bench. So this was a really unique process already. And then, you know, fast forward to the week after the hearings, effectively, you've already had the meetings of the senators, you've already had the hearings, you've already had the questions for the record, almost 1,300 questions for the record, which is more than all previous uh, Supreme Court nominees in history combined answered, and then we had this new story that came out about allegations, um, and then Dr. Christine Blasey Ford obviously coming forward to uh, put a to put a name to these allegations, and then that that started a whole new phase, which, uh, from my perspective, really showed how dysfunctional the Senate process has become, especially considering Senator Feinstein had these allegations for a long time going forward, didn't follow the procedures that are there designed to look into things like that in a confidential manner, either with, you know, through the FBI background check process and through the closed section of the hearings, uh, didn't come up then at all, ended up coming out in a way that unfortunately ended up being maximally damaging to Dr. Ford herself and to her own privacy and, and to her, her you know, great distress, it seemed, having to come public to Judge Kavanaugh, obviously, 
uh, doing irreparable harm to his reputation, and then I think to the process and, and the American people. This wasn't a, a, a good way to have this discussion. So that said, after you know having having hearings on uh, further hearings going into that those particular allegations, as well as an FBI investigation looking to those, as well as some further allegations that came out in the meantime, we obviously had a vote. It was a both that was bipartisan on both sides. There was uh, one Republican that voted against Kavanaugh and a Democrat that voted for him. And uh, now we have Justice Kavanaugh as our most uh, recent Supreme Court justice. So it, it, it is, you know, I, I thought after the Thomas confirmation, we probably couldn't, couldn't get any uglier. But I, unfortunately, this seems to have been kind of hitting maximum um, incivility, <laughs> to put it lightly, in a confirmation process. Um, but uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful that you know, maybe maybe this will be something that we can hopefully keep confined to this seat. Perhaps it was a feature of the replacing Kennedy and in uh, at a time when we also have a major resistance movement against the president himself. I just hope that I, I think um, one thing takeaway for most of America is this this is not a process that we want to see repeated, regardless of which party is doing the nominating next time. There's a there's a, a, a Supreme Court justice, so we'll see how how we do on uh, on accomplishing that. Steve, as long as we've been talking about some of those sexual harassment allegations, uh, how does this compare to what we went through with Thomas? And did we learn any lessons from Thomas and Kavanaugh in this whole process? And what now? Those are fantastic questions, Craig. And I've got to say, I'm not sure that we've learned any lessons. I mean, we saw similar kinds of allegations in Justice Thomas's hearings and a Senate that seemed at the time utterly incapable of dealing with them, and we saw very similar allegations with uh, with Justice uh, Kavanaugh's hearings and a Senate that seems utterly incapable of dealing uh, with these very similar kinds of allegations. I've got to say I find it very disappointing that uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee can't figure out a way to deal with allegations like this in the context of a Supreme Court nomination or, for that matter, any other nomination and deal with it in a way that respects the dignity of the accuser and uh, the dignity of the process. Uh, the, the Senate Judiciary Committee just seems wholly ill-equipped to do that, and, um, and that was a grave disappointment. Uh, yeah, I have to agree. It was a very disappointing process. Unfortunately, I, th I think after the Thomas hearings, that was my understanding is this is part of the reason we have a closed session to the hearings because um, with, you know, with a certain number of nominees, there are, there are allegations that ought to be looked into by the committee to try to figure out whether there is merit to them, but without bringing, uh, you know, any of the parties in, out in such a way that would uh, cause embarrassment or reputational damage before you actually know whether this is something that, that is, is valid or not. And it, it, that's, some, that's a process that was ignored in this situation. So that's what, that's what I think is really discouraging is that there, there is a procedure in place to allow the Senate to do it properly. And it was absolutely not followed. Senator Biden, who is then chairing the Judiciary Committee in 1991 during the Thomas hearings, at least did follow those procedures to a certain extent where he, he when he received um, word of Anita Hill's allegations, turned it over immediately to the White House, who then had the FBI investigate, and then they had that all done confidentially. So it wouldn't have had, and that was uh, apparently what, what uh, Hill said she wanted as well, that she didn't want to have to go through this whole hearing process. And it was 
then as it was now, unfortunately, it was a leak from within the committee that then started it and turned it into more of a public circus type atmosphere. And that's, that I don't think does a, a, a good service to anyone in the process. Um, so it's, it's discouraging to see that, that maybe, um, you know, the, the, that kind of partisanly fueled leaking process hasn't been fixed. I'm not sure you ever can in DC uh, fix that entirely. Um, but that seems to be the thing in my, from my perspective that, that has damaged them both. Although I, I do think that Senator Feinstein ought to have disclosed this to the committee earlier because it is something that should be looked into to assess whether they think that it's weighty and credible enough to, to affect the nominee. And so they didn't have the opportunity to do that in a way that would have, that would have protected everyone's privacy in this way. And that's, that, that is the shame. And it's also a shame that then after, after that, that you had leaks that then blew the process up in such a public um, and damaging way. First off, this is not a criminal process. And these weren't criminal allegations before the Senate Judiciary Committee, although in a different context, they certainly might have been. But the context in which they were presented to the committee was not a criminal context. It wasn't even a civil context. And so we often hear terms and phrases kind of bandied about like, you know, due process rights of the accused or innocence until proven guilty. Those concepts don't have any legal and direct bearing on what happened at the Senate Judiciary Committee. They're, if we talk about ideas of due process, we must be talking about them in a non-constitutional sense and in a kind of fairness sense, and certainly not a constitutional sense, because there's no mm -hmm. due process at issue in these proceedings. And so in terms of Senator Feinstein uh, holding on to the letter in order to protect, you know, the anonymity of Dr. Blasey Ford and, uh, you know, sort of the, the way that the Democrats went about this, I think, you know, is largely a response to the Republicans trying to, uh, trying to get Judge Kavanaugh through the nomination process without revealing a number of documents that the National Archives had not revealed using an unusual review process for the documents that it was going to uh, that it was going to reveal and preventing the Democrats essentially to ask what I think many consider essential questions of the candidate that have nothing to do with the sexual allegations but have to do with his fitness to sit on the Supreme Court everything from his time in the Bush White House to his handling of other uh, judicial nominations by the Bush White House to his role in Bush administration policies like torture, for example, and whether he had any role in those things. I mean, those are all fair game questions that the Republicans prevented the Democrats from even considering at the hearings in any serious kind of way and prevented them from obtaining documents that they should have been able to obtain in order to ask those questions. But then ask the further questions about whether Judge Kavanaugh had been honest to the committee when he was nominated to the D.C. Circuit and when he was nominated to the Supreme Court about his time in the White House and, uh, and his opinions about things like whether the government can torture people. Let me interrupt here and just ask the question about how some people have alleged that during uh, Judge Kavanaugh's hearings, he did not exhibit the kind of judicial temperament that you want to see for a Supreme Court judge. I mean, there admittedly were some outbursts. He was parodied by Saturday Night Live. Kerry, what's your thought on that? Well, his response in that hearing was very, I think, very significantly not at all one of a judge at a, uh, in a hearing. He was, not, he was not in the position of a judge. He was in the position of someone defending his reputation against 
uh, allegations he said were false and horribly so. And so I, I think that's, um, you know, th this is not this is not a, an indicator of how how he behaves on the bench because it's him in a very different role. We saw we have seen him in 12 years on the D.C. Circuit. You know, as, as Steve mentioned at the outset of the podcast, his reputation was one of a judge who was a very good judge, an even-handed judge. Yes, it was a conservative uh, judicial philosophy, but someone who people on both sides knew they would get a fair shake from. That's why you had people like Professor Akhil Amar at Yale Law School writing and saying this is probably one of the, the best uh, people you're going to get a, a, a conservative, but someone who is fair. Um, as, a, as a judge. That's why former Solicitor General Don Verrilli um, endorsed him. And remember, his first confirmation process, he didn't ease by. In fact, he was filibusters. He had to have a whole second round of confirmation hearings. So, you know, one could say, oh, he's going to come in with a chip on his shoulder because of the contentiousness of his first confirmation process. But what we saw was, no, not at all. He actually came in and, again, made a real reputation for himself as someone who is very scrupulous about hearing both sides of the uh, story. I think that's part of the reason he got along so well with his mentor and former boss, uh, Justice Kennedy, um, who was not a doctrinaire conservative uh, by any means either. So it's just, this is, um, I think that's it, it kind of, from my perspective, the last and yet in a ever-shifting rationale for uh, for opposing Justice Kavanaugh was, was okay, well, you know, now it, he was, angry at the way this process was carried out and therefore cannot be a judge. I don't think anything in his 12-year career has um, illustrated that. So a couple of things troubled me about his demeanor at the trial. First, or the trial, I'm sorry. <laughs> Whoa, right? Um, you know, first off, Judge Kavanaugh comes from an appellate court, a federal appellate court, where judges actively question attorneys as part of the, the hearing. They usually sit in three judge panels and they actively engage the attorneys, often with aggressive questions about the positions that they're taking and trying to get the judges to accept. I mean, Judge Kavanaugh is well familiar with that process and undoubtedly has seen it at the Supreme Court as well, and now being a part of the court, he knows it. This is the same thing that happened at the Senate Judiciary Committee. Judge Kavanaugh was presented with evidence against him or allegations against him and, and other evidence against him by some of the senators, and he responded in a way that I would say if any attorney in his courtroom responded to him as judge, he would justifiably be outraged at the attorney and be seeking possible sanctions against that attorney. A couple of other points I wanted to make. First off, some of these outrageous comments were prepared remarks that he made when he came back to the hearing the, the, in the morning and started spouting about conspiracy theories among Democrats and bringing in the Clintons somehow as if they had something to do with this, uh, which was deeply troubling to me on a lot of different levels and uh, led me to believe that if I were representing a litigant at the Supreme Court, representing an interest, for example, the ACLU or the NAACP or something to have to do with any progressive organization or the Democrats, I would have to seek recusal from this justice. Um, I think he has, he, in, that, in those prepared remarks, these were not off-the-cuff responses to allegations that he was receiving or being blindsided by. These were things that he had well prepared in advance and delivered in, a, in an outright angry way to the Senate Judiciary Committee, which not only was wholly inappropriate, but I think reveals a deep bias on his part. 
And then finally, I want to make a point that if a female candidate for the bench behaved in that way, I think we would have a very different view of it. I think the, the line would be, well, she's an angry woman and temperamental and cannot sit on the Supreme Court. And, you know, the fact that we have this kind of double standard, I think, is pretty outrageous and just underscores, I think, particularly in the context of sexual allegations against a woman, that we do have these deep double standards in our society. And all these things tell me that this is a man who temperamentally is... I, I'm not so I'm not prepared to say that he's unfit to see, sit on the Supreme Court, but I have deep questions about his fitness to to sit on the Supreme Court, and I think those are fully fair questions to ask after the display that we saw. We're going to ask those questions right after we move on to our new segment. We're going to take a break and hear a quick message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and we're joined by a returning guest, Carrie Severino. She's Chief Counsel and Policy Director of the Judicial Crisis Network. And Stephen Schwinn, he is a professor of law at the John Marshall Law School in Chicago. And right before the break, Carrie, I cut you off, so jump yeah. back in. Oh, yeah, I just wanted to follow up because the idea that his statements would require recusal I think that that's absolutely not how recusal works. Clearly, you have people like Justice Ginsburg, for example, who quite famously stated lots of stuff uh, very clearly opposed to President Trump, suggested she might want to leave the country if he were elected, and yet has not recused herself from any case in which she's involved, including his immigration uh, executive order cases that obviously were very closely um, associated with him personally with his campaign, that if that were the standard, she obviously would have had to recuse herself. She didn't. So that's simply not the case. And I, I also just... As, as a woman, too, I object to suggesting that a woman would have been treated differently. I don't think I think that's a, a, a imaginary uh, idea that somehow a woman who spoke very passionately would have been dismissed as a crazy woman. And look, for example, at Amy Coney Barrett, who had to very passionately defend herself against anti-Catholic attacks during her hearing. I don't think anyone called her some kind of hysterical woman and said she wasn't fit for the bench from it. I, don't, I, I just think that's suggesting that there's a double standard there isn't really fair. There hasn't been a double standard. I think he, he, he's someone who fervently defended himself. Women had to fervently defend themselves at times, too. Well, we have had a number of judicial misconduct complaints against Justice Kavanaugh. Steve, how do those work? What's the process? Well, so it's a little unclear because he's now appointed to the Supreme Court, and uh, the the Chief Justice has referred these to the Tenth Circuit, which presumably will do some sort of investigation and evaluation of them and then make an assessment. But it's unclear whether the Tenth Circuit will have any authority to do anything because he is actually on the Supreme Court at this point. The Constitution does provide for removal of Supreme Court justices, but it's by impeachment. And so a coordinate court or a lower court wouldn't have any obvious authority uh, or even non-obvious authority to sanction or force recusal or to remove a sitting Supreme Court justice. 
So it's not clear to me what this what the Tenth Circuit can or will do with these complaints, but um, but sort of there you have it, and and there they are. Kerry, what's what do you think? Justice Kavanaugh's impact is going to be on the Supreme Court. I mean, obviously, we've we've seen him come across as a very uh, conservative judge. How are his rulings going to be viewed, or and can we take anything of the criticisms of Justice Thomas's uh, viewpoints to give us an indication of what's going to happen to Kavanaugh's opinions? Uh, well, I think he's someone who, well before his time on the Supreme Court, obviously was was a really um, significant figure for the court already. We have more than a dozen times while he was in the Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court vindicated his decisions, often his dissents, um, and many times citing his language specifically saying that this was the opinion they want. So he was someone who was already very influential, even as an appellate judge. And um, I think he, this is going to carry over in his time on the Supreme Court. He's someone who knows a lot of the members of the court already. He, he knew Justice Kagan because obviously she hired him to teach at Harvard Law School when she was dean there. And it seems from watching them in these, in these opening hearings, they're joking together and they, they, um, they seem to uh, have maintained that, that friendship and that good working relationship. And, uh, you know, the, the other good news is our society is so polarized right now. But the Supreme Court, I think, is a unique place in that the justices, while they do have a lot of differences, they make those arguments not by shouting at each other, not by, you know, uh, you know, boycotting each other's events or, or things like that. I mean, Justice Kagan and Justice Ginsburg, for example, attended not just his, his main swearing in, but his initial swearing in. So he get started on the, on the job early on, on Saturday, the day he was confirmed. They convince each other through argument and through civil discourse. And um, even though they disagree firmly, they can still go away and be friends. And I think that's something that hopefully we can all as a society learn from the way the court, the court does this. Yes, have, have very firmly held um, positions and passionately held things, but they can do it in a civil way. And I, and I think that will be um, you know, a legacy of, of his time there. It seems like watching his early hearings, we can already see um, that the, the court is moving forward with its characteristic civility. I agree with those assessments, and I, too, hope that this can be a kind of model for the rest of us, the way the rest of us interact in, in politics and civil society. Having said all that, Craig, I do think that there will be some important things to watch when Ju Justice Kavanaugh starts to issue uh, opinions and, and votes in, in pending cases. There's a lot been said, for example, of what his appointment to the Supreme Court will mean for Roe versus Wade, and I think that's something to pay attention to, but I've got to say, I think the far more important influence that he may have on the court has to do with the separation of powers and in particular presidential authority under Article II of the Constitution. He has indicated in um, some of his writings and many of his uh, uh, actions that he is a big proponent of a robust Article II authority, and I think in the age of President Trump that is especially significant. Um, and so I, th I think the separation of powers and, and how he feels about presidential authority are things that we really need to keep an eye on. Kerry, let's take the springboard off that. Presidential uh, powers, and it seems like we have, uh, I mean, there were a lot of people that said that the only one of the reasons that Trump nominated him was because he needed that support in several upcoming cases. You know, I don't know. I'm not sure what uh, what all the Trump's factors in there are, but I, I think absolutely separation of powers is a key area that Kavanaugh has been working in for years. That's the course he taught at Yale, at Harvard, at Georgetown. And so he's clearly thought about that deeply. I think it's going to be interesting to watch the interplay of his thoughts on executive power, but also on administrative power and how those work in. So he seems to have a very strong view of um, the president's 
role constitutionally, at least while it, when it is truly accountable to the president. But when it comes to then moving out into these agencies that are that are in varying degrees much more uh, attenuated links to the presidency and much more, you know, not not the clear constitutional. Uh, line of authority and chain of command, he's much more skeptical and critical and make sure that this actually fits into the constitutional system. So I think there could be things that President Trump likes about that. And then there could be areas where he, he was wishing that Kavanaugh would give his, his um, agency administrators, for example, a little more um, authority. So, you know, I, I think the great thing about his approach is that it's something, and remember, he's not going to be here just for the Trump presidency. He, if, if, if history is any indication, he'll be here through many different, uh, uh, different presidents of different parties. And so that is his consistent approach is one that I think is going to be good. There was a study that was looking at his, the, the way he approached administrative law and found that he basically had the same, used the same standards, whether he was dealing with a, you know, quote, liberal or quote, conservative regulation. If you're trying to, it's always a little hard to code those things, engage, you know, what counts as what. But I think that's really what we want to see, because that then puts it back in the American people. Like if, if you want to elect a, a president of one party, that's what you're going to get a president of the other party. And it's not the court that's going to be stepping in to try to second guess that same thing with the laws or the regulations. Those are going to be given the same legal standards, regardless of whether they were passed by Democrats or Republicans. And I think that's the best system because then we can have as the American people be the ones who are choosing our representatives. That's what the constitution envisioned it. Although I will add to that, Craig, that uh, often the position with regard to administrative agencies that Kerry was talking about turns out to be a politically conservative position, and that's because so much of the work of the agencies is to do things like environmental protection, labor protection and labor rights, education, and so on. And those tend to be progressive causes, and so when the agencies are regulating in those areas, they tend to regulate in a progressive way. When the courts cut back on the regulatory authority by cutting into, for example, the Chevron doctrine or, or changing, uh, changing long-standing rules with regard to separation of powers and appointments, um, those things will tend to benefit political conservatives because the regulatory agencies are, certainly in today's politics, almost inherently progressive. Well, I, I have to say the, 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 the caveat on that is his approach, for example, to the deference to agencies really would say, no, we have to go back to the text of the statute. So that then puts it back into who is it that wrote and passed the statute? And that could be a Democrat or Republican-led Congress. So I, I see your point that if the agencies are trying to aggressively push things um, you know, and, and take maybe particularly creative or, or more aggressive interpretations, they are more often than not coming from the left. And so pushing back on that may, may have a disproportionate effect there. But if you, when you're looking back where I think constitutionally you should look, and I think where Justice, Justice Kavanaugh would say you should look to the law itself, that's something that should be passed by a, it could be passed by a Congress of either party. And hopefully because of the demands of our representative government, then would also be something that more closely represents what the American people want and, and the compromises um, that would, that would allow that to get passed would make it less of a, you know, wholeheartedly left or right endeavor, but something that actually more closely approximates what the American people want. That's obviously well, the ideal. Hopefully, hopefully we, we can come close to achieving that. Let's take oh, a look sorry, at just a, a couple of potential opinions and some of the hot buttons, Roe versus Wade, uh, gay marriage, Second Amendment. See, where are we going on those? Yeah, you know, if I had to predict and lay money on it, I don't think that the court's going to overturn Roe versus Wade for a variety of reasons that we can get into, some legal, some non-political, or some non-legal and political. 
But I do think that what the court will do is continue to cut back, trim back, chip away at the fundamental right the woman has to uh, to get an abortion in our country. So I, I, I actually don't think that Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned, but I do think that the right will slowly go away, kind of death by a thousand cuts. As to the other issues, um, I would expect, although don't know for sure, and, and we won't know until he has a chance to rule on these questions, that Justice Kavanaugh would rule for a robust uh, Second Amendment. And with regard to same-sex marriage, I mean, that case is decided. I think that cat is kind of out of the bag at this point. And, um, you know, even if the Supreme Court were to go back and reconsider its decision on same-sex marriage, we're now at a point in society where this is so widely accepted. I think it's not, you know, we're, we're not going back at this point. I think the, the interesting questions here are those that were raised in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, for example, uh, this past term and what the court is going to do with those. When the court ruled in Masterpiece, of course, it ruled in a fairly narrow way, ruling that members of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission expressed anti-religious animus against the cake baker, and in that way they dodged the larger question. Well, that larger question is going to come back to the court at one point or another, and it's going to be a really important question, not only for same-sex marriage and gay rights, but for all of civil rights across the board. You've got to remember that it wasn't really all that long ago that we were hearing religious objections to anti-discrimination laws by race in our country. And the Supreme Court said, no, there's no religious pushback to anti-discrimination laws that restrict discrimination by race. And so I think the hard question for the court is going to be, does that principle apply equally to anti-discrimination by sexual orientation? If it doesn't, the court's going to have to come up with a pretty good reason why not. And it's not at all clear to me what that reason might be. I think you know, Roe versus Wade is unlikely to be a wholesale overturn. I think you made the same thing about Obergefell. We'll, we'll have to see. But I also think the chief justice is really more likely to swing vote in those cases at this point anyway. So, you know, it's not just Justice Kavanaugh. We have to kind of get in his mind. We have to get in the chief's mind on those. Um, in terms of Second Amendment, I think it's, uh, you know, Justice Kennedy himself was a vote for Heller uh, and, and city in, in uh, Chicago and McDonald. So in that case, even if Justice Kavanaugh is very strong in the Second Amendment, which I think he is, if you look at his, his opinion in, in the second Heller case as the follow-on to the one the Supreme Court decided, he had a very strong opinion um, in favor of uh, the Second Amendment and his strong Second Amendment rights that actually has been cited repeatedly by Justices Thomas and uh, you know, the late Justice Scalia themselves. So that, that is interesting. One area you might see a difference and this is where they often cite it, is in dissent from denial of cert. So depending, and it's very hard to know behind the black box of, of, the, of cert, you know, depending on what Justice Kavanaugh's position is there, you might see the court maybe taking some of these cases that they've passed on before because he could be the fourth vote where Justice Kennedy was not voting to take those cases. So that's one area I think would be kind of interesting to see how that's going to impact you know, any of these areas, religious freedom as well. There have been some cases that um, had three dissents from denial of cert in, in recent past that they said we, we should be this is this is an important issue we should address it so whether Kavanaugh will be the fourth vote to take up some of those questions uh, doesn't tell you how they're going to ultimately be resolved but, it, but it, I think it'll be interesting to see if that expands some of the topics the Supreme Court is addressing. We've just about reached the end of our program we want to invite our guests to share their final thoughts and their contact information if they like so Steve let's throw it over to you. Oh sure thanks so much I really appreciate the opportunity Craig and thanks again for having me on. 
I would just say, you know, I think we need to keep an eye on this. This marks a significant shift to the right on the Supreme Court. I was going to say a moment ago that one of the areas that we haven't talked about and I don't see a lot of talk about is death penalty and Justice Kavanaugh's influence on the court with regard to death penalty, particularly given Justice Kennedy's position on death penalty, which often sided with the progressives. I don't expect the same thing to happen for with Justice Kavanaugh. So I think it's important to keep an eye on what's happening at the court. Separation of powers issues, I think, are going to be key, but the other ones that we talked about as well. Um, it's been a delight to talk to you about this, Carrie. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, listeners can get in touch with me at the John Marshall Law School, schwinn at jmls.edu. Thanks again, Craig. Great. Thank you, Steve. And Carrie, your final thoughts? Yeah, I'm just excited to, um, looking forward to this, this term and seeing a little bit more of what, how Justice Kavanaugh comports himself you know, in, in his decisions and death penalty is only one of many areas that, for example, didn't come up in the D.C. Circuit. So we don't we have we know the principles that he uses to apply uh, to cases in terms of his originalism and textualism. But we haven't seen them um, carried out in, in death penalty cases or, frankly, many criminal cases, because that's simply not in the D.C. Circuit docket. So I'm excited to look forward to that uh, this term as well. And I'm, I'm pleased to see him already doing, doing well in his uh, in his oral arguments. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, some of his first opinions. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at JCN Severino, and uh, our, our website is judicialnetwork.com. I also blog at National Review Online Bench Memos blog about the Supreme Court as well as you know, major judicial nominations issues in the lower courts. Great. We really appreciate it. I would like to thank Carrie Severino, Chief Counsel and Policy Director at the Judicial Crisis Network, and Steve Schwinn, Professor of Law at the John Marshall School of Law in Chicago, for joining us today. That brings us now to the end of our show. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. And you can visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.